Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Godfather, the 1972 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, screenplay by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Oh, I'm saving him. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> we were bracing ourselves for Don Corleone. <laughs> um, okay, before we uh, jump in, question for Spotify listeners is, what's your favorite gangster movie? Let us know. And if you're watching on YouTube, let us know in the comments below. Okay, so we're talking about The Godfather as the beginning of our trilogy of episodes on The Godfather trilogy, because... When we passed a thousand patrons, we had a vote across all the platforms, Twitter and Discord and Patreon, all the places, uh, and people chose The Godfather. It was close. Back to the Future was in second place, almost made it, but The Godfather won. Uh, and in first place in a lot of individual uh, votes and stuff. So it was like right. it was very close. So now we have to try to talk about The Godfather. <laughs> Uh, the film that the American Film Institute uh, ranks as number two best film of all time behind Citizen Kane. Um, so no pressure. So to start off The Godfather, I think I'm just going to talk about what I remember from the first time watching it, which I had kind of forgotten until watching it again recently. But I apparently according to my memory that has now resurfaced, was really into The Godfather in high school. And I mm. think it was, I think we got the trilogy on DVD and my dad was really into The Godfather. And so I think I watched it with him and it was part of that, like, you have to learn cinema. You're going to watch this and you're going to watch that. And I was like, oh, Godfather, blah, 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 blah. And maybe, I, no, I watched it in high school, film school, also at like around the same time. Anyway, our film class. Uh but I remember going in thinking I wasn't going to like it, thinking it was going to be like slow and boring and all these things, but being like entranced by it and just like swept away in the filmmaking and the storytelling and all this stuff. But I'd forgotten so many details of it. I don't know that I've watched it mm. in probably 10, maybe even 15 years. It's been a long time. Wow. So going into this rewatch, I was kind of feeling the same way of like, am I still going to be into it. I remember it being kind of like long and slow and I never really know what's going on and all this stuff. And it is long and it is slow, but oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> like it's just still really, really good. There's a reason mm. it's one of regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. Um, so yeah, it was just really fun to revisit and still appreciate all the filmmaking, the really bold choices that could have backfired. The making of this film has lots of drama behind it that's more complicated than I can wrap my head around. Um, but it it is such a unique entry into this library of film and cinema. And it's weird to think that like The Godfather didn't exist at one point and like mm -hmm. performances mm -hmm. and cinematography, all that stuff. So I liked it a lot as a kid and then watched it again recently and still really liked it and appreciated it at a even you know higher level than I did originally. Um, so that's my relationship with The Godfather. Trisha, Tell, tell me about your first experience with The Godfather, if you remember. Sure. Uh, this will be brief. 
I have not seen The Godfather that many times. I saw it, I think, for the first time when I was in college. We were doing like an AFI top 100 like watch, basically, me and a bunch of my friends. And none of us had seen The Godfather or The Godfather Part 2. And we were just like, look, we got to do it. Let's do it. And let's just sit here and do it. Um, and we watched them back to back, I think, not in the same day, but like one day. And then the next day we came back and watched Godfather Part 2. And... Uh, at the time, I was like, yeah, I get it. This is good. This is good filmmaking. Uh, performances, good. Cinematography, very good. Uh, story structure, yeah, it's here. Themes, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and I literally, I don't think I've thought about it even one time since then. Um, and then I, I watched it like last week and I was like, wow, <laughs> this is a really good movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I, I mean, like The Godfather is great. Like, it's a great movie. It's certainly among the best films of all time. Is it going to mean that much to me personally? I don't know. I don't think so. Like, dollar for dollar, I'd rather watch Casablanca or even Citizen Kane. Like, you know, when you're talking about the the greatest movies ever. Hell, I'd even watch Titanic before I'd take <laughs> The Godfather, right? But, like, I, I do get it. Like, I get the thing. Um Listen, I'm never going to be a dad. <laughs> I thought you were the dad of the group with your films. I, I know. This is the thing is that I, I also surprise myself. I love to bring dad movies to the group. And my dad is the one who got me into movies. And in some ways, I feel like I, I am him. Uh, but in this case, I just am not. I'm just not a dad. Um, or I'm just not a, a man, maybe, uh, or, or son. I'm not any of those things. And so, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, not with that know. attitude, I guess yeah. not. <laughs> and so I just, I just don't know what this movie really means to me personally, deeply. It's like, I don't enjoy seeing the women slapped around and I, I know it's like the point and like we right. could talk about them. We could talk about all the screaming babies and, and all this stuff. <laughs> so many screaming babies. Um, but yeah, I, I just, it's like. It's not going to be like a, a, a personal movie to me, but I do really like it. And I'm super excited to to pull it apart with you guys. So, yeah, which is allowed. You know, I think we, we can all appreciate great movies and they yes. can also mean very little to us. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm excited to talk about that as we move forward, even because it's yeah, the, the content of this movie, like on paper, none of it are things that I feel like I would resonate as far as the surface mm. level stuff that's happening. But there is some weird, deeper thing that draws me into the story, despite the hyper masculinity and misogyny and all these like problems that are like, you know, of the time and of the culture and all these things. There is some kind of, you know, the, the root human story is a really compelling story. So mm. we can unpack that and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, very excited about that. But first, Brian, tell me about The Godfather. Yeah, a little bit of both of, of what both of you guys said. Um, it's not like a top 20 movie for me of all time, but I really, really love it. And every time I watch it, I'm just blown away by it. Um, and I sort of weirdly got into it. Like, yeah, like you were talking about on paper, what is it? You know, and I feel like for me, gangster mafia type movies and um, sports movies and like political thrillers, it's just like my brain just shuts down when I'm watching them sometime where it's just like, well, we just found out that the guy down the street is going over here to the place to do the thing. And I'm like, I have no idea what any of you are talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, but the good ones like Rocky and The Godfather, like they sort of break through where you are tracking. You're like, oh, right. That happened because of that scene we just saw. And, you know, there's a little bit in the third act of this movie where it's like, hold on. OK, like, what, give, show me the family tree, you know, <laughs> right. um, names. Yes. And uh, right. <laughs> but the way that I, I got sort of more into this movie or this franchise is actually weirdly similar to how I got more into Star Wars, which was through video games. Um, so I first watched this movie and was like, okay, good movie. I get it. But like, I don't know. Um, and then I played the Godfather video game on the Wii, which there was like a Godfather. Yeah. (laughs) There's a Godfather and a Scarface, like, um, GTA knockoff. And you are, it's sort of like the, um, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or the Godfather where you're a thug and you're like the guy who sneaks into the horse barn and you're the guy who drives the getaway car and you're sort of like, Mm, just, you know, on the side of the wings. But it was the Wii, so like to garrot somebody, you have to actually. <laughs> put oh, the what? Thing. So no. highly recommended wow. for kids. Um, <laughs> oh, wow! But the the uh, result of that was I end up spending a lot of time in this world with the music playing and like oh, the yeah. characters and be like, oh yeah, Clemenza, and then so then um, a couple years later, I bought the like restor- um, restored Blu-ray. And that was when they were just like figuring out how to restore films to look like insane, you know? So <laughs> North by Northwest and the Godfather trilogy were two Blu-ray sets I bought where I was just like, how was this not filmed yesterday? This looks amazing. Yeah. Um, so then when I watched the trilogy, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I feel more like into this world now because I had spent some time there and then everything started to click for me. And then now I've watched it. I watched the trilogy actually a year and a half, I guess, right before lockdown, um, I watched it and um, really loved it. And, and revisiting the first one right now was uh, was a joy. And the second one is very long. So that'll be a little bit more homework, but I also, <laughs> yeah. I also enjoy it. And I have positive things to say about the third one, too. So I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Yeah, I am excited to go through the whole thing and, and see the third one again, because I remember almost nothing about it. And I'm really curious to... I'm glad we're doing this. I think it'll be fun to yeah. like refresh all of all of that. Um, interesting. Okay, so via the video game, I would not have guessed. There were a video game that I didn't know existed on the Wii where you had to physically choke people out to kill people. That's <laughs> <Wow>. great. <laughs> Are we sure that was a good... I'm sorry, that seems... <laughs> yeah. Must we? I, I, look, I, I, I turned out fine. <laughs> 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 all right, and Alex, what about you? Yeah, uh, this movie... It's interesting. I think about it. Actually, I've seen it at different stages in my life, like different decades. So mm-hmm. I think the first time was the same thing as you, Michael, where it was like a dad thing where you know, my dad was like, you got to see The Godfather. It's like, you know, the movie. And and I remember you know, I didn't follow most of the story at all. You know, <laughs> whenever I first saw it, I, I didn't know what they're talking about. I couldn't understand what Marlon Brando was saying, uh, but you know there what, were what are you talking about? <laughs> there were these really iconic moments and shots and scenes that stuck with me, and and it, it did burn into my mind in a way that few movies do. So there was something mm. about it that like stuck in my mind, even though I truly didn't follow half the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I I probably saw it during film school, but the time that I really remember falling in love with it was seeing it at the Cinerama Dome uh, at the Arclight here in Hollywood. And man, I had good like center center seats and the the curtain, the curtain parted in this huge, (laughs) beautiful old theater and the music comes on over the black screen. I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm, like, I am, I am here for this. And it, and I think it was maybe it was coinciding with the um, the Blu-ray restoration, and so it was mm. this beautifully restored like 4K projection mm. of 
of the film and it looked amazing on the big screen and the you know it looked like a painting it was just so gorgeous and i followed the story mostly and i actually understood what was happening and and understood the characters and so yeah basically that's when i fell in love with the movie and, and it just clicked for me oh now i understand why this is on all those top 10 of all time lists this, that makes sense i i get it and um and then watching it again just this week uh i liked it even more because i think uh, there were still too many names and too many mafia families for me to follow even in that second viewing uh, in in the theater I, I didn't quite catch the ups and downs of all the plotting and the revenge and how that all unfolded and and this time i was able to just pause and rewind if i had to at home and just really get the story and man it, it's an amazing movie because it, it is almost three hours long and it has that that tempo that feels slow and yet every scene is doing something there's yeah. no extraneous scenes here it's 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 like a weirdly efficient movie for how kind of i don't know like it has this kind of like slow easy flow to it and yet no moment really feels wasted to me uh and and that's maybe why it, it does land in that masterpiece spot for me is it's it's a movie where every frame actually feels essential while also Lots of room to breathe and taking its time. Essential mm -hmm. might be too, going too far, but I mean, I, to me, to me, I, I was trying to look for, you know, uh, do we need this scene? Do we not need this, need this scene? And, and it's like, oh, no, sure enough, that paid off later. Oh, sure enough. Right. That was important setup. Sure enough. I, I needed to see that character do that to understand this at this later point. So most of most of the things that, that I, I think I see other older films or classic films and it's like, yeah, this is gorgeous. This is great. But I don't really know if I need this scene. I don't really if I know if I need to spend this much time here. And Godfather finds this perfect balance of just that classic, long, epic feel and yet feeling essential. Part two, um, I've maybe only seen <laughs> once or twice. I do not remember feeling the same way about part two. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious to revisit part two because I do remember not having that sensation <laughs> during part two. But part one yeah. does feel that way to me. We'll definitely talk about part two. Part two is interesting. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but apparently better, lots of people well, say. Well, so, so I think that's what's yeah. interesting is that, like, yeah. uh, you know, we can, we'll wait to talk about part two next yeah. week, obviously. But I do think that it's sort of like Return of the King theatrical or extended. It's like the extended is like, mm. just here's more stuff. You know, if you really want to spend a lot of time in this world, but you can cut a lot of it out and make sort of a more boom, boom, boom kind of momentum pulsing movie. And I think that that is for my money, why I would say one is, is at least my preferred one. Um, and why I would probably argue that it's better, but like two does so many cool things like the obviously prequel story and like, how mm -hmm. do you, you know, we'll talk about all that next week, but yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you said that uh, about the efficiency of this film, Alex, because I guess I fundamentally do agree but it is a little bit difficult to appreciate it on the first watch through mm -hmm. because Absolutely. <laughs> the plot is uh, very sort of diffuse and mm -hmm. takes a while to crystallize. Like there, it turns out there is a lot of plot as you're pointing out, and it does turn out to be like so complex. It's almost really hard to follow. And so like, 
So, you know, maybe we could just talk about the structure for a few minutes, but, you know, the, the movie opens at this wedding and, you know, people are coming to visit uh, Vito in his study and, and like those people all end up coming back. They end up being important. It They end up being critically important. Right. And the relationships among all of them and like with Vito are critically important. But in that scene, when you're watching it for the first time, you don't know that. Mm -hmm. And you kind of can't really sense it either. The movie isn't really interested in signaling to you, like, what the significance of this request is or what the significance of, like, this gesture or not is kind of thing. And so you watch that whole long sequence. And I looked at the clock this time around. It's like 18 minutes long, that opening wedding whole Mm -hmm. sequence. And it's not apparent at all. And the movie doesn't care if you like know who anybody is or what is going to happen, like it doesn't signal to you at all what's going to happen. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have that feeling of, okay, now the plot has kicked in and we're off to the races. Like that doesn't happen for quite a while Mm -hmm. because even the whole thing with like, here we have Johnny Fontaine and the the part in Hollywood and there's like the horse's head in the bed, which I really want to talk about um, logistically. (laughs) 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 But like none of that, you know, not none of it, but like, again, the connection between that, it doesn't have that sense of like, instead of like a single row of dominoes where each one is tipping the next one and that one only, it has one of those more like huge room-sized domino patterns to (laughs) it. Yes, yes. And so if you're like watching any individual domino, it seems to hit three other dominoes and you're like, wait, am I supposed to watch it that go that way or this way or that way? I don't know. And so on the first watch through, it is difficult to kind of see the whole big picture of what it is going to be. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, the domino metaphor, because I agree. That's part of why the first watch through, I was like, what happened? Why? And and the efficiency I'm talking about really is only after you've seen all the dominoes fall and you realize every domino had to be there for the for the thing to fall. Right. But but it's not. Yeah. As you're saying, on the first watch through, it's very disorienting. It's like, I'm not sure where, you know, why are we in Hollywood for so long in this kind of a detour? Yeah, it, it's, if you're trying to orient yourself to where this movie is going, it does not give you a clear sign for quite a while. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think um, a good on a whole plot movie plot um, uh, aspect. Carlo is a good example of that, where it's like you see like here's mm-hmm. a, a just horrible person. And then if you do this one more time, I'm going to kill you. And then there goes Sonny. Bye, Sonny. Right. And then and then like the next time you see Carlo, he's just a guy like in the family. You're like, wait a minute. What? And then it's yeah. two hours and 45 minutes of the movie. Like, OK, we got there. <laughs> we had to go. We had exactly. to go yeah. Um, yeah. But with the wedding sequence, I do really appreciate how much it does do. I think the the Johnny Fontaine sequence is really, I think, just there to introduce the audience into into this world. Right. right. Yes. Um, and it doesn't do much else than that plot wise. And I think that that is. Um, like that could be cut and you would just make Michael's story about Johnny Fontaine, like more, you know, holy crap, because the interesting thing is like how this sequence sets up those characters. Right. So Michael shows up, you know, that's my family. Kay, that's not me. Uh, and then, <laughs> but then like, Kay has no idea what's going on. So then she's our exposition character, but the story that he tells her of like, Oh, they held a gun to his head and said, it's going to be your signature or your brains. Like that's a pretty tame story actually in the world of this movie. Right. But to them, like to Michael, like that's a true story to Kay is like, Oh my God, what am I doing here? But then of course, you have all these other characters and then and then you are juxtaposing the wedding with 
all of the stuff in in you know Godfather's office. You come here with me on the day my daughter's to be married, um, where there's like <laughs> these rules, right? Like I can never <laughs> turn down a, a request. Um, but you have that opening monologue, right, with the guy who talks about his daughter, and it's like this is welcome to the story world. Here it is. Also, we're gonna go dance and have fun because these are genuine like people who enjoy life and they have fun and stuff. But then also here's this scary thing and we're going to like send some people to be killed. And then now we're having fun again. And you're sort of, here's Sonny. He's a little bit of a wild card. Here's Fredo. He's a little bit of a mess. Here's Mama Corleone. who's a glorified extra. Uh, You know, you are, you are getting a sense of who these characters are, but to your point, Trisha, you don't know necessarily that those characters are going to be meaningful the first time you're watching the movie. Exactly. Right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and I want to talk about the wedding scene in terms of pacing also. But as far as, yeah, the, the plot goes and what we're saying about all these, you know, the dominoes that slowly happen. I was thinking about it while watching it this time and trying to figure out why I was engaged in every scene. And I think there is as we've talked about before, the importance of like power dynamics. There's always a lot of mm. power dynamics happening. Yes. And each individual scene does have drama, like stuff happens and turns yeah. are right. always, you know, going on. And there is this, you know, who's, is Sonny going to blow his head and like do something impulsive or is Michael going to join them? Not? Like there's, there's always a dramatic question in every scene and the detour to Hollywood is weird. And I also was like, how did he get the bed, the horse head into the bed without it's dude? so much blood. Like I did I it in the know. video game. I can tell you all about it. <laughs> Brian did it. Like, right. <laughs> it doesn't make, I'm sorry. It doesn't make any sense. There's no possible way uh-huh. logistically for it to happen. Like it's such an iconic scene and I like respect the hell out of it for that reason. Like, and yes, prioritize an iconic image and an iconic yeah. scene over the logistics of how to make it happen. By all means, go ahead and get it. Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo. But like, I was just like, what? He's I mean, the reveal is this so whole good. Time. Oh no, of course yeah. it is. It just doesn't make any damn sense. I started watching the making of The Godfather and then paused because it's actually about the trilogy and I didn't want spoilers mm. for my okay, rewatch yeah, yeah. of three. But in the very beginning, one of the things they're talking about is the horse head scene and it's Francis Ford Coppola essentially saying that he misread it in the book. And in the book, <laughs> it's not in the bed. It's just like at the foot of like, you know, not physically in the bed, but not, in the room okay, looking yeah. at him when he wakes up. But Francis Which Ford Coppola like, misread it. And was like, yeah, it's in the bed. That's intense. And so that's, <laughs> that's what it is. Um, but that's the <laughs> logistics aside, I feel like that cements to us as audience the stakes yes. of this world yeah. and the kinds of things that can and will happen if people mess up. And yes. so... This, yeah, this movie definitely takes its time, but it's taking its time doing all these really necessary storytelling things. And to kind of circle back to the wedding and the, the opening shot, 
the pacing the opening is, shot. Is, it's so ah, great. And yeah. It, yeah, it just sets the pace like right out of the gate. The first line, right? Like, I believe in America. It's doing yep. theme yep. from the beginning. It's doing all yeah. the stuff. And it's just a super, super slow zoom out on this guy telling the story. And I feel like it does so much to establish the world, like we're saying, set the mood, set the tone, set the pace. The look of it is like, you know, it's the the classic underexposed like office, like all of it just does so much work to really uh, kind of like infect your mind as audience of like, this is the, the thing that I'm like being absorbed into and then it never lets go of that hold it has. Mm-hmm. Right. Despite what I was saying about when I watched the Blu-ray, it felt like it was made yesterday. I think the first time I saw it, I was like too young to understand that it wasn't made in the era that it was set. Yes. Because mm-hmm. like, like it has that like sepia tone and everything I feels still so struggle good. with that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, wait, this this wasn't the 40s. This was OK. All right. Part of the opening wedding scene, too, is there is such authenticity in it. I think that's mm-hmm. part of what it's setting the stage for. And, and that, that was one of the behind the scenes things I was reading about was they really wanted like an Italian director. Like they wanted to to because they, there, there were other Hollywood mafia movies that were not really steeped in Italian culture. They were just kind of these stereotypes uh, with non-Italian actors and non-Italian writers and filmmakers. And I think that opening wedding scene as an adult, I just like like watching the wedding <laughs> and, yeah. and just seeing just seeing how authentic it all feels and seeing, you know, how it, it, this family is complicated. It's not just this. Yeah, these evil goons who are committing crime. It's this it's this complicated, big, sprawling family that's kind of taking care of each other at the same time. The FBI is trying to infiltrate the wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a really complicated, authentic, interesting you know scenario and and it it also i think it's i think why i like this you know gangster mafia movie more than most others is the whole movie itself doesn't feel like it's kind of um relishing in the cool of being like a mobster mm. or a gangster mm-hmm. like look how much fun this is it feels more like a, almost like a documentary about a historical period and a moment um which i think is so much more interesting than kind of like a like a male fantasy of power like i, I don't i don't get those vibes as much from the godfather yeah i mean there's there's so much that like work that we're talking about that that opening scene is doing i love the contrast between like the overexposed, so bright yeah. outside of the wedding and then like the super dark, like you can hardly see anything. This is <laughs> like, why would the light be so low in this office? No one could possibly <laughs> even read a paper in here. Like um, it's it's just really, really great and, and doing all the things that you talked about. But I think it also, the sequence strikes the right balance um, of explaining, but not over explaining. And like the culture is there, but it's not being like, um, I don't know, like it's not being, uh, made fun of or any way. Like it's not, right. the, it's not like caricature, huge Italian right. stereotypes right. or anything <laughs> like that. It's just like, here is a family that is from a culture and it's not, you know, um, like played for comedic value in any way. Like it's it's seriously just like, okay, there are you know, non-Italian people at this wedding as well. Like Kay is there to, as Brian mentioned, be a surrogate character. But like, it's not like Michael's like, well, and now we Italians do this. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's, there's just enough of that lightness of touch of like, we're just going to show it to you. 
And if it's really different than your culture, then it'll be, you know, kind of exotic or interesting to you. If it's not super different to your culture, then that's okay. You won't, you know, like whatever there, it's kind of just like playing it straight in the way that you're talking about Alex as like a documentary, um, where the Italianness of it feels baked all the way into the core. It doesn't feel like layered on top or trying to be like assertive or in your face. Like I think, and yeah. that's, that again is about the like uh, specificity is like universality, right? This could be mm-hmm. about any family in so many ways. It happens to be about an Italian family. And so I think that that's like a big part of the reason why this movie has such wide uh appeal or like relatability because ultimately the relationships exist within the specific cultural context but they're understandable on like a basic human relationship familial context as well yeah well and to sort of move further into the movie a thing i was thinking about is that it the, the godfather part one i feel like has a simple enough character through line that it mm-hmm. helps us get through um, the complicated, more political maneuvering that is hard to track the first or maybe second time that you see it. But Michael's journey is very clear and the beats for it are very clear. And so I remember also always as a, when I first saw it in high school, really loving the hospital sequence. So, oh, yeah. When, so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Like, so yeah, Vito's shot, he's in the hospital, Michael goes. And it's, yeah, it's tense the way it's shot. The sound design, especially for being 1972, like it's doing so much work. And we'll talk about the midpoint and the, the diner scene or the uh-huh. uh, restaurant scene. Um, but that it, it's also serving as kind of like a point of no return for Michael or just like he's mm-hmm. he's being pulled into this now where now he's here and he has to protect his father. It's up to him to save his life and he's yeah seeing firsthand uh you know the business that's going that's going on and so i think you get that even if you're not entirely sure who's being sent there by whom to do you know you know what they're there to do but Mm -hmm. uh so i just think that's another thing that is really clear is that all all the michael scenes where he's taking a further step toward becoming the godfather uh are very clearly drawn and expertly executed cinematically which makes it so much fun to watch even if you're a little confused about the things happening around it yeah yeah in uh into the woods john york refers to it as the uh the darkened version basically saying it's like an upside down character arc where they they sort of end up in the dark place instead of making the the positive choice and then i think it's km wyland who refers to as the corruption arc and she uses Mm. uh the other best trilogy of all time, uh, the Star Wars prequels, as the other example of a character's <laughs> corruption arc over three movies. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's very interesting to study. And like you said, Michael, the the plot points are so clear. And that'll be something that's interesting, that'll be interesting to track with part two, because you have mm-hmm. this origin story with Vito. But then I couldn't tell you what Michael's sort of journey is in that movie without having to sort of read a summary of it uh but in this movie it's so it's so clear and it's so it's so well executed the fact that he he sort of doesn't want to do it but then he does kind of want to do it and you're always sort of tracking he's like i got it it's my family da da da. but then also like it's his choice to do this it's his choice he's sort of like starting to kind of go well maybe i do want to do this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it's one of the best transformation like on-screen transformations like ever in my book yeah because you really 
it happens gradually and yet quickly. Like at the same time, his 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 turn his turning points sometimes are like really big, but but it's always believable and and even physically. They have these markers of his transformation, how his face looks, you know, whether he's been punched or not, or um, later his kind of like, you know, slick back, you know, Don Corleone look. There's always like a, like a visual sense of a transformation happening. And and it, yeah, I don't, I, it's, I want to almost study it one more time to really track how they do it. But it's, it's amazing how he, I really do buy at the beginning of the movie, he just wants to have kind of a carefree life with Kay. And I completely buy his choices every step of the movie. Mm -hmm. There's other films where, you know, like the Star Wars prequels, I would say, <laughs> where, you know, a character uh, is choosing the dark path, but I don't know why they are. And it's like the, the movie needs you to do this. Like, Anakin, you need to care a ton about Padme maybe dying so that you have to become evil to maybe stop her from dying. But they um, took my mother. <laughs> so I killed her. And the but, yeah. women. <laughs> like chill. <laughs> the turning points don't always, you know, track for me. I'm not sure why uh, this is happening now. But yeah, in The Godfather, it just it flows. His transformation is so seamless, um, mm -hmm. and and it just and, and just the final scene of the movie is just. By the time we get there, it's like, wow, I I am here with you as a character, and it, I completely believe and understand how you got here, and it all makes sense. Well, what the movie does so expertly is that it has this omniscient point of view where we are not just with Michael, right? We're like everywhere. We're with, you know, mm -hmm. Tom over here in Hollywood. We're with Vito here as he's like making this deal in that room. We're with Luca Brasi as he's like getting killed over here in this <laughs> in this restaurant or whatever. Like we're everywhere. And so it has this like operatic quality to it where Michael is the protagonist and he is the character that's making the most crucial choices. He has the arc, but his arc is inextricably tied to all of these like machinations that are like happening everywhere. And so the movie puts us in a position of understanding maybe even more than Michael does the complicated moving parts of the choices that he's making. And so we are put in the position of like, wow, well, you know, what would we do if we knew that Sonny was this, if we knew that, you know, Fredo's over here doing this, if we knew that, um, you know, Luca Brasi's dead over here, Tom Hagen's advising us to do this. Like, what would we do in that position? And it's really interesting because the complexity of the... Corleone family's empire um, and all of the people that it touches is it's so like infinitely complex that it feels right. It's like a kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you might not agree with the way the kingdom is run, but the fall of the kingdom means the fall of a lot of innocent people as well. And so you have this sense of like, well, it's pretty infinitely complex. It really isn't just like Michael can walk away, right? It puts us in that sort of moral bind to which there's really no good response. Like if they tried to kill your family, like if they tried to kill your father and they killed a lot of people that were important to you and you knew for a fact that you're like, it wasn't your decision for your family to become this, but that's what they are. And so, like, and if you knew for a fact that, like, you know, there's, I want to talk about kids in this movie, but there's kids running around everywhere. There's babies all over the place. There's crying babies all the time. And it just reminds you of, like, there are obligations here. 
Like none of these people necessarily maybe made the choice themselves to be born into this family. But if this is your family, then there is not a clean way out of it for you. You cannot just walk away. And so the movie really brilliantly puts us into that position of like, Michael can't just walk away. We kind of wish he Mm -hmm. could. And he acts like he could. But again, there's the universality of the predicament of being caught between family and all of the lives that your family's life is intertwined with versus like what in in a vacuum would be the moral choice, right? Mm-hmm. In a vacuum, the moral choice is easy. Don't have anybody killed. Or don't kill them yourself in an Italian <laughs> restaurant. But like, <laughs> right, that that is easy to say. But from the very jump, by putting us in a lot of scenes that Michael's not in, we're also weighing the impacts of all of those decisions because we can see the ripple effects. It's really smart and really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking a little bit about, you know, Succession, the HBO show and Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones watching this and your and your kingdom. That's the right metaphor that I was, I think, searching for is, yeah, you you understand the scope and the number of people that are touched by this. But you also in those scenes where you're sometimes with Michael, sometimes not. It's also doing that thing that you've called out, Trisha, before of like there are worse bad guys also like a Corleone family is as honorable and respectful and caring as you know you can be in that situation and i feel like like you're saying there's part of the universality of it is you know i've never had to decide whether or not i need to avenge a family member's death or not but we all have to you know figure out what are we going to sacrifice for family and Mm -hmm. we know how our choices yeah will affect those that we care about around us and so it's kind of these universal experiences just in a really heightened atmosphere where the stakes are so, so high. And I think that's why, you know, by the time you get to the middle of the movie and Michael's going in to kill a police commissioner and the the other guy, Slotso, you're like, you're fully like rooting for him. And there's a lot of just like, um, like set up writing things that are also going into that experience that I want to talk about. But by that point, you are kind of on his side and understand the stakes of what's happened and why maybe this is the least bad choice. Well, and speaking of bad guys that are worse, a corrupt police officer, Mm -hmm. like police commissioner is a bad dude. And they do a lot of talk about like the drug trade, right? And like how Mm -hmm. drugs are like bad for the community and like, you know, right. they're somehow way worse than like, oh, we're just going to fix your building permit or whatever, <laughs> right? Like whatever yeah. the mafia is normally doing over here, we're like protecting people within the family or community or like giving this baker his whatever he needs, right? Right. So like all of that seems like somehow cleaner, more family friendly business things. So yeah, they right. are setting up a really clear contrast with like, no, these guys are way worse. Yeah. yeah. And I also want to shout out uh, Sterling Hayden real quick, who's Captain McCluskey. Mm-hmm. He's in a few of um, Stanley Kubrick's early films. Most notably, he's Jack D. Ripper in uh, Doctor Strangelove. And he's in The Killing, which I recommended as a really awesome early Kubrick. And he's just just as he's sort of like one of those actors who is like very stern, but can also he has like some really nice range to him. So I just really like his performance in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just just to add to all this about, you know, the the worst bad guys, I think the film is so smart in giving us characters that we really we like characters that are loyal to each other. You know, like, yeah. like Tom Hagen, I, I, you can't help mm. but love Tom Hagen because it's like 
Robert Duvall, he's, he's so good. It's like, <laughs> he's just such a, he's such a genuinely loyal guy uh, mm-hmm. who really is dedicated to this family. And whether or not you agree with that family's morality or what they do for a living, uh, we like that, you know? And so there's, there's characters, you know, Sonny is an interesting character uh, that, that complicates the kind of the honor of the family. But, you know, when it comes to Don Vito or Michael or Tom, it's like, you know, they're, they are operating in this criminal world, but they're honorable criminals who kind of have a code and are trying to do the right thing, at least for the people they care about. Um, and, and that really, that makes us want them to win. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's such a well-designed character web where there is this hole in the middle of it, right? Because you have mm-hmm. Sonny, who is like the worst case sort of son. And then you have cousin Greg Fredo, who is just like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And then and then you have Tom, who's like really smart, but is not technically part of the family. Is not a Sicilian yeah. and, da, 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 and there's rules. And then Connie, who you want it, you kind of want her to be left alone. You know, we'll talk about yeah. her in especially the third movie. Um, but it really does leave this hole in the middle that Michael is just like so perfectly shaped to go into. It's a weird metaphor. <laughs> it's, yeah, but, but it's yeah. Inev- it feels inevitable. It's like, who yeah. else yeah. is going to fill this void? Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and to your point, Brian, the movie literalizes that in the opening scene at the wedding where they're like, hey, oh, we're going to yeah. take a family photo. Where's uh, Michael? Yep. Where's Michael? Mm-hmm. Is he not here yet? I was thinking that there are so few scenes actually between Vito and Michael. There really mm. are not that many when it's just the two of them, at least not when Vito's alive slash conscious. Um, <laughs> and but but yet it feels like there is a lot of history to that relationship. And part of it is is just at the beginning where they're ready to take a family picture and it's Vito that's like, we're not taking this until Michael gets here. Yeah. Right? Like, it's those critical little moments that give that relationship like a lived-in feeling. Um, and yeah, it's we can see that the sort of unique uh, makeup of Michael's personality does make him perfectly suited, right? Like, he... He is smart. He's strategic. He understands what needs to be done. He's also quick on his feet. He can improvise like we see in the hospital scene, which is a really great scene that tests him, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the thing about character arcs is that we, a character might have, you know, the right traits that they need, but we need to see those traits in action so that when we get to the midpoint, so that when we get to, you know, Michael's last final few beats of that arc, we know already who he is, that he has the makeup of like, he can be this in this moment. He can be calculating, but he can also be like ruthless and, uh, you Mm. know, but, but improvise, right? Like he does sometimes have to improvise. And so there's, there's just a lot of really great character work that doesn't feel like it's, shoehorned in it's just right you know organically baked into uh, uh from the very first the, the very minute we see michael in his uniform right like mm-hmm. he says one thing he does other things it's all the classic like character building things like it's it's textbook and there's a reason why literally every textbook <laughs> <laughs> references this references this yeah. like the design of michael and his arc yeah. Well, one moment that I don't think it's talked about enough is the moment where he won't say I love you to Kay over the phone. Yeah. And I just feel oh, like that yeah, is you just seeing one. him kind of up until a certain point, we are kind of believing that he is being himself, but in a way that he feels like he has to. And that's the moment where you kind of start to tell he's like, no, I'm kind of letting myself mm-hmm. be manipulated by this world, even that, you know, even if I, I would like to, but I can't. And 
again, like the, the sort of mask he's wearing of what things are the things he has no choice but to do and what things are his choices. Yeah, it's that compartmentalization, right, that you mm. that all of these characters are sort of forced to do where it's right. like in this room, I'm this person in that room, I'm that person. Um, and yeah, that moment is a really good one. Yeah. It's interesting on the topic of, yeah, is is he being kind of forcibly sucked into this world against his will or you know once he gets a taste of it does he realize damn i'm good at this and i kind of like it and i i the mm. answer is yes and that's why that's so interesting <laughs> that's, that's what's yeah. so good about it is that yeah it, it doesn't feel you know there could have been an approach to this where you know he's he's like resisting it the whole time and, and it mm. just forces beyond him you know it's a tragic story of him being doomed to this fate but it seems like he really embraces his fate at a certain point and and kind of relishes it and and he and he is really good at it he is the natural successor to his father and i think part of him really likes that and so that's why it's such an interesting character it's not it's not one dimensional in that way. I mean, am I misreading it? Do you think, Trisha? No. Is it talk, yeah. time to talk about the midpoint? Because I is. feel like that's the point yeah. we're about to talk yeah. about. Yeah. When he volunteers, right. he's like, exactly. hang on one exactly. second. Yeah. Are they get like, they'll trust me. They think I won't make a move against them. It's not the personal, strictly personal. Strictly personal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so <laughs> understated in this movie. I didn't even recognize it the first time. Truly. Right. And then by the third movie, we got, they bring me back in again. <laughs> <laughs> That was that always tripped me out. This is an aside about Al Pacino. But as a kid, having seen Al Pacino as an adult in things, going back and seeing him in this was like, wait, what? That's not Al Pacino. That doesn't look like him. That doesn't sound like him. And then, yeah, by the third one, I was having trouble believing it was still Michael Corleone. Right. No, you don't look like him. him. Like, yeah, (laughs) you got that other guy. Uh, Trisha, my shenanigans cut you off. So I apologize. What were you saying? (laughs) No, I was just going to say that, you know, that's the scene where he volunteers, where they're, you know, right. Tom is there, Sonny's there. They're trying to work on getting him out of the situation. Like, well, okay, what can we do? Maybe we do need, you know, Tom is saying, like, you have to go along with Salazzo, basically. Like, you know, um, and that's, that in itself is really interesting. Tom's so interesting as a character, but it's Michael's idea, right? He's like, no, they yeah. think, they'll think that I won't make a move against them. But like, if we can do it, we'll plant a gun. We'll do like he comes up with the entire plan and volunteers to go ahead and go through with it. And I love that from that scene where he volunteered, like comes up with the plan and volunteers and then like through to the actual midpoint scene where he pulls it off and kills them both. There's like a lot of like build up to that where we're starting Mm -hmm. to fully understand the steps that need to be taken for like Michael to pull the trigger in that situation. It's really the weight of it is built up and built up. So the stakes are just so high. And when they're in the car and yeah, Yeah. going to New Jersey, but then turning around, it's just every, Mm. it's it's drawn out so beautifully. Yeah. And and we're, we don't know whether he's going to do it. Right. Like he, you know, he goes to the bathroom, he comes back out, he sits down. I love that. uh, I don't know if I appreciated before the sound design there is diegetic. It's like you hear the train coming and it's like, so most, uh, the sort of modern movie would do like the people who are talking, like their sound gets turned down and (laughs) then you hear like, a you know, but instead they just do it with sort of natural sound design. Um, and then and then there's the montage right afterwards where I feel like the editor was like, let's just put some footage of Clemenza with his shirt off and see if anyone notices. Um, <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> Which I didn't. I don't remember that. Uh, yeah. Well, so, so, yeah, that restaurant scene is like an important one in my memory because I'm pretty sure it's the first scene 
I ever analyzed, like I ever、mm. learned how to analyze. As、nice. it was in my film class in high school, we were lucky enough to have a film class in high school. And、I、remember our teacher, Miss Lopate, showed us The Godfather, and then was like, "No, we're gonna watch the scene again," and like broke down like all these things, and like I was just like my mind was blowing, and yeah, all the things we we're talking about of it setting up these rules and these expectations of like. You're gonna go in, come out shooting, and you know two、yeah. shots to the、yes. head each time. Drop the gun immediately. All these things、mm. that he then doesn't do, but manages、right. to still pull it off.、Uh, yeah, the tension, like you're saying, of almost going to Brooklyn, but not. So all those expectations, and then I remember her also pointing out that the scene doesn't have subtitles, which was harder for、yep. me to right, notice、yes. this time. But yeah,、yep. there's there's no subtitles because it doesn't. Matter and I like I remember her saying that and like my brain exploding of like、mm. oh my god there's meaning and just like whether or not you put subtitles on there and then yeah as you were saying Brian the diegetic sound of like the the train going by the subway train or whatever like adding this tension there's no music it's just all sound building to this such an intense moment when he finally makes that choice and it's so clear that there's like no going back yeah and it's just、yeah. it's the Best midpoint scene ever. I don't know. I just <laughs> probably love it so、yeah. much. Yeah, it's it's like it's just like the midpoint scene, <laughs> right? Like, and even even in the bathroom, like the time it takes for him to locate the gun、yeah. by the toilet、right. is like perfect. You know, it's、right. the exact right amount of time <laughs> to make you doubt that it's all going to fall apart. And you know, the shot of him leaving the bathroom is like this beautiful, perfectly framed shot with like. The layers of bathroom stalls, and、mm-hmm. just you see the back of his head as he's. Oh God, it's just, it's too good. It's <laughs> upsetting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just the level of detail that we experience about what the plan is supposed to look like and is supposed to be is what creates that tension、mm-hmm. because the movie gives us this sense of first of all, without ever having to tell us that Michael has never killed anybody before, like.、Sure. Right. First of all, maybe he has. Maybe he hasn't. We don't really know. In, in battle, he was in the war, right? Yeah. Like yeah. so, probably.、Um, so the movie doesn't go out of its way to be like, "This is a turning point for Michael" in the text, right? Like no one says that in a line of dialogue or anything like that.、Dude. But just the concern <laughs> over how we're going to talk Michael through it and talk Michael through it again and like remind him of the things that are important and like here's all the details of like. Here's what we know about the restaurant. It's a family place. Here's they have this, and like it's usually kind of busy. And like the whole just detail where we're imagining the scene before we even get to it, and then like here we are in this weird room where we're practicing the shots, and like here we are, squeeze the trigger and drop the gun. Like you're saying, it's just. I think it was in the. We've talked about this with heist movies before. Yeah, where, it's very heist. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like the more that we know about the plan, <laughs> right? The worse it has to go, right? Right? Or vice versa. If we know nothing about the plan, it can go perfectly.、Um, but we know so much about the plan that any aberration at all, any tiny detail that doesn't exactly go to plan, feels like the end of the world, right? When he doesn't walk out of the bathroom shooting, I'm like, oh my god, right? Even right. though I know how it's gonna go, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a microcosm for this whole this whole movie and this whole trilogy, really, which is these strict sets of rules, right? It's it, like、mm-hmm. there's one of just here's how you have to do this, you know, this shootout, but there's another of just like here is,、um, yeah, you know, how you have to behave when you are in front of the Godfather. Well, like Sonny 
speaks up in that one meeting and Vito's yeah. like, don't, it's just like, Sonny was just like, wait, are you saying this? And, and Vito's like, talk, you know, that, that's against the rules. And, and that does create so much tension in the movie. So you're always sort of going like, uh-oh, did someone say something wrong? Um, and then, you know, we'll talk about Fredo in the second movie, but we get that in the Las Vegas sequence here and in the Mo Green where it's like, hey, we can do whatever yeah. we want. We're made people. And it's like, mm, not not quite. <laughs> there's still these sets of rules. And obviously the the meeting with the five families, like there's, there's so many, there's more rules than we understand, but we understand that there are rules. We understand that there is like stakes about if you don't follow things, a certain etiquette. And again, that's set up in that opening scene where he's Mm -hmm. like, you didn't kiss my ring. You didn't call me godfather. If you'd come in here and done those things, like check all these rule boxes. I can't remember the last time you asked me to come over a cup of coffee, but it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, Brad. It's the face. The face is what like really makes it. You got to watch this on YouTube. (laughs) My face makes a lot of people laugh. (laughs) In appreciation. (laughs) (laughs) They're laughing with my face. With at you. (laughs) Um... And I think, once again, the efficiency I spoke about earlier mm-hmm. is that those rules matter. You know, I think it does right. matter yeah. that Sonny speaks up out of turn. It gives a signal to the other crime family that, oh, there's a crack here. If we got rid of the father, maybe there's a deal to be exactly. made. You know, so it's like, yeah, nothing is there to be just kind of extraneous or random. There is a story reason uh, in addition to it just being interesting that this family has these rules and details. Mm-hmm. Question. Let's talk about... Michael in exile and Apollonia <laughs> yeah. for a few minutes. Yes, let's do that. And someone tell me why that is not extraneous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. To me, it does feel like the ultimate like hardening experience for him of like there is no other life. You know, like I think I think that she offers an opportunity to just basically like have a totally alternate future um mm. it's just in a different country different context just like almost like going back to the old world and living in the old ways and ha- kind of have, having this like simple life in sicily and then the just hor- horrific violent ending of that i think just to me is like the point of no return for his character of like you know that that you're part of this family there is there's a vendetta out against your family there's no escape from this. Mm. You can't you can't go anywhere and get away from this. You can't marry this nice girl from this village um, without hurting her. Uh, so I I yeah, it's a good point that maybe we don't need all of it. But I, I do think that it does when he comes back and he and he meets Kay and he and he's this changed man. I do think that it helps that he fell in love again and had his and had his heart broken in the most like violent, horrible way. To, to just kind of confirm that there is no alternate path, you know, in, mm. in, in, in the cards for him. Hmm. Um, and, and I believe that he has that darkness, you know, moving forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it does that for me. And there's probably a certain, uh, like, a, you know, rite of passageiness of like, you know, had, has he ever been back to Italy? Has he ever been back to the hometown before? If he is going to take over as Don, it's almost like he's getting, you know, christened going going through the like rituals right or whatever like he's been to the (laughs) homeland and he you know he's knows what it's like and spent time there that i feel like helps maybe add to the authenticity of him when he comes back and he has the you know the power of the godfather but i do agree that probably the ratio of time we spend with the people on screen to the uh impact it has on the plot is out of a little out of whack there 
And that's also p- the part of the movie I find myself not zoning out because I'm still watching it. There's lots of pretty things happening and I'm still engaged. But like, I did find myself like chatting more with like my partner when I was watching it during that scene mm. of like, okay, so what do we like make of everything that's been going on? Like, it's <laughs> yeah. almost like a soft intermission in a weird way. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. So for some reason, I think that's that works for me. But it is an interesting point to, to raise. Mm. I, I also just sort of like, once again, like the opening wedding scene, it's just fun to kind of see the old world Italian customs, you know, like mm. the the court, the courtship process, mm-hmm. you know, which is so patriarchal and all these in all these ways. But also the, it's funny watching, you know, they're supposedly talking for the first time, maybe as they walk and then, and then it just reveals like this entire <laughs> yeah. party behind them, like supervising right. them. Right? Yeah. So it's like it's all that stuff is is fun, but I agree. I don't know if you need to see that you know this and this and this to to have the payoff of her death because we don't really get to know her at all. You mm, know, besides that right. she is having a blast learning to drive. Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, <laughs> Thursday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, Saturday. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I was gonna say actually a moment ago that this movie this time really felt like. A novel, like it felt like a, a book, yes. and yes. The, how well thought out it is, and all of the like every thread coming together. Something about it just feels so solid in a way that makes sense that it like was a book first. Um, but I feel like that sequence is also a sequence that probably is more fun to read in a book for a while mm. than to watch on screen and have it take that much time. So it's maybe the like the downside of it being maybe too novely feeling at at times. Yeah, and, and once again, it's not it's not a love story that we're invested in because we don't get to know her at all as a person. Right. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, actually, you saying that, Alex, illuminated something for me that was never a word that I had really thought of before, but it's like ritual um, mm-hmm. is such a, a really huge, like ritual and religion, right, are a really, really huge part of this movie. And I think that you're pointing out something that's, a great argument thematically for the inclusion of all of that Apollonia stuff, which is about the ritual and the, like the religion. And, you know, we talked to, we're, we've spent a lot of time talking about the rules and how rigid they are and nothing is more rigid than like adhering to a religion, right? That's what a religion is. It's a set of rules by which you live your life and based on a set of beliefs. Right. And so like, that idea of Michael is bound by this set of rules inextricably because of who he is, because of where he comes from, even if he's never set foot there personally, right? That's in his blood. It's in his heritage. And so he really doesn't have another way out. Like, not not just because, like, he can't go live in Sicily because Apollonia gets blown up in a car bomb, but... Also because the, that set of rules is never going to change for him. It will bind him wherever he goes. Um, and yeah, the the like blood feud of what it means to be a part of his family is never going to stop because it's literally in his blood, right? Like, And so I feel like the nice thing, <laughs> sorry, uh, I've said this before uh, in different, maybe to you guys, but in different screenwriting circles. The nice thing about Catholicism is that as a religion, it's very cinematic. Um, Yeah, it is. It is. It's full of rules. Mm -hmm. It's full of like visual, like ritual. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And like, and, and that's what, that's what like 
characters need, right? They need rules. They need like also highly cinematic, highly visual symbols that represent things that mean things. And that's like, maybe I'm not going to say of all the world religions, but certainly of all the like Western world religions of the, like how concrete Catholicism is, it is very cinematic and like serves a strong narrative purpose. And so again, having that layered into the culture here in a really organic way, right? That is accurate and true also creates that character bind that we need for Michael. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Well, and so it's interesting because there's, yeah, that sequence does kind of slow things down a little bit, but then once he's back, time kind of like speeds up really quickly mm. in a way that was hard, right. hard for me to track even. Yeah, yeah it's disorienting. Because yeah. um, apparently the events of this movie happen over 10 years, which I mm. didn't like really track. And it was hard to be like, wait, how old is Vito now and all this stuff? But yeah, once it, it gets back, it is interesting how quickly it moves and then kind of like rockets toward the finale, the, you know, the epic montage of... Michael becoming the godfather mm -hmm. while you're seeing him like murder all of his enemies like just you know there's the symbolism there's the filmmaking all of it is just so good and so cathartic and uh and feels like the filmmaking there feels timeless and classic to me like I think that's what I was struck by probably every time and I just wasn't conscious of it but there's something in the filmmaking how it's all edited how the sound works all that stuff that feels like yeah modern or timeless and classic and probably because it was one of the first ones to do it so well and then it was like look do this all the time always um crosscut <laughs> right but yeah i just like i love that sequence and it's like all, finally all those threads all those dominoes that were spread wide across the room all come crashing down into those final bits and it's yeah it's just it's so good and everybody dies yep. <laughs> and everybody dies <laughs> And then, you know, I think um, I want to talk, uh, come back to Apollonia and we talk about part three because um, Coppola does something with the new cut of part three that tries to sort of comment on the on the women in Michael's life and sort of how he's basically mm. directly responsible for for the, the, the pain that they endure. And, you know, if you think about it, what's the worst possible thing you could do after coming back from Sicily is like find your ex-partner and right. be like hey come live with me because yeah. like i clearly um you know uh that's safe um and, and i and i think <laughs> it's like car yeah. right <laughs> um so i think it does you're right she she like there's kids <laughs> she's walking and then she's just like yeah. the kids just go off on Bye their kids. own yeah he's like all right i'll get in the car um but uh but i mean it does it does really sell the darkness if you think about it the movie doesn't really comment on this but the fact that he just came from like here's what happens if i marry someone on the other side of the world now right. i'm going to come and like find someone i care about and put them in my life and then of course all of that culminates in the final the uh last piece of dialogue which i didn't realize the last of us completely stole um think about it people who know oh, what i'm talking about yeah, um, yeah. and then uh, and then the door closing and the sort of like you are here but also you're not here and then of course that also means we get K for the next two movies, which is awesome because Diane Keaton is is yeah. freaking star. But um, but it does really, I think, hammer home like we have created the ultimate villain now, and now we're going to spend two more movies kind of with him. And what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of the perfection of this movie is just the power of that final uh, line. You know, where mm -hmm. you know it's 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 just a simple scene. It's like she's asking him a direct question. Mm -hmm. 
can you please just tell me the truth just this once? Talk about your business just this once. He says, yes, I will. And he lies to her. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just and it's just so simple and so concise, but it just says so much. And it just hits you so much harder than any other version of that scene where she's just like mad at him or they have a yelling match and, you know, they're miserable. The fact that she's happy and we know that she was just lied to is just so heartbreaking. Um, so, yeah, I just what a brilliant note to end the film on just the simple lie that is just so powerful. Yeah. And leading up to that also, we get a tour of Michael in like his full range of powers, right? Mm. Where everything, like not just in the final like assassination, christening, intercut sequence, which is incredible. Uh, and many people have discussed, but <laughs> like the whole control of information going into yeah. that scene is also masterful where Michael has told different people different things about what's going to happen. He's like, we're not going to move against them. Like, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. Like, Tom, you're moving into this position. We're like, and we kind of, we don't have any other information. Like, we don't know what he's planning, right? And so it's the same thing with the scene with, um, what's her, what's his name? His brother-in-law, Carlo. Carlo. It's that it's that exact same thing in the scene with Carlo. And and that scene also is like Michael and his full power where it's like we believe he's like, you think I'm going to make my sister a widow? Like, uh -huh. Come on, dude, you're going to be <laughs> right. fine here. Give him a right. drink. He's fine. Like you have to go away forever and never come back. But like, I'm not going to kill you. What? Like we're brothers. <laughs> and then immediately he dies. It's that exact same thing where Michael, we see how Michael is controlling the narrative now. Michael is controlling the information. Right. And so like people are forced to believe him. And and that's the thing in that scene with Kay when he first comes back from Italy where he's like, I'm, I want you in my life. You know, you, I need you. Please come back. And like, you're, you want to be like, run for your life, Kay, don't. But he's so powerful already that you know that she's not going to be able to say no. He's in total control of that situation. And from that point onward, it's just this, you know, race to the finish of like, we see Michael just in his full, like confidence, power. He's moving all the pieces around perfectly and people just believe him when he talks. And also like the, the instincts of what is needed for like the Godfather to be the Godfather, right? Like Vito tells him, he's like, they're going to do this to you. They're going to say this to you. Whoever mm -hmm. says that to you is a traitor. And then we are just so, we know it's going to happen. We're just so curious to see who it is. Um, but again, the intuition of like, if you can anticipate what your enemies are going to do, you can stay ahead of them. So there's no outthinking somebody that is like the true godfather because the godfather already knows it before you even try to do it. <laughs> and then we see that exact thing that Michael does. And like, it's, it's just so brilliant that run up to the finale. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, I think that moment that we're talking about when he, asks Kay back and tells her to get in the car and all that stuff is when I found myself anyway, no longer on Michael's team. Right. Right. I think yeah. that's kind of what we're talking about here is that there is part of you that is rooting. Maybe there's a way he can like find the best, you know, or the least terrible way out of the situation. But for me anyway, in that, that final act, it's almost this like dread of like, Oh, now he's bad. Mm -hmm. How bad is he? And then by the end, Real it's bad. all the way bad. And right. you know, the, that final image is, yeah, 
and Diane Keaton getting the door shut, but it's also kind of makes you feel like, oh God, like what have we created? Like, what have we let happen is sort of how I was feeling in that moment mm. of like, oh, wow, we just, I was with him for a lot of this and now look at where he is. And so I feel like that's, that's, I think, a, a fun place to leave it to then pick up to talk about in part two, because I think part two goes into all of that even more. There's yeah. a lot to talk about with him and his continuing character arc. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we move to lessons? What lessons are we going to take away from the godfather brian do you want to start us off sure um i am thinking about this movie after coming off of our matrix trilogy um conversation and we talked about how in the first matrix um you know every action scene is doing a plot thing and every uh piece of dialogue is um interesting and and, uh, either tense or is exciting or, or whatever and i feel like that is and then the second two movies, nobody ever smiles, right? Um, and I feel like that is that combination of things is what we get in this movie specifically, um, and maybe less so in the next two movies. But it just feels like every every talking scene, as we talked about, is so tense, and there's always like something going to go wrong. There, there's there's stakes, there's tension, there's what's this going to mean, and then. Every scene that's not a talking scene, someone is getting killed or getting beat up or getting chased or whatever, which for better or for worse is entertainment in some form of it, right? Which we find ourselves drawn to to that kind of stuff. Um, But then on top of all this, there are these moments of levity. Like we do have the whole wedding sequence and we have people just cooking and like having a good time and and, and really kind of enjoying each other. And even, you know, um, we were talking about Vito's death scene, but like he's just playing with the kid and oranges in these movies um and (laughs) um and there's there's a sort of sense of just you know kind of like you said um someone said it's like a documentary i think trisha you said it where it just feels like we are really living with these characters and and enjoying enjoying life and living life while also dealing with all the all the darkness and i think that regardless of apollonia and how she is sort of used in this character. I love the Sicily sequence because it feels like such a breath of fresh air after the midpoint. Like we have spent the ha- like 90 minutes building to this darkest point that Michael could pi- finally could possibly get to. And then we are in Sicily and things are pretty and we kind of have like a new origin story and there's a girl he likes and like <laughs> he's sort of becoming like a, like a mini godfather there. And we're seeing, and then of course that ends the way that it ends. And then, as we're watching the Sicily sequence, we're also watching things happen back in New York. And then, of course, everything kind of culminates towards um, towards the the climax of this movie. But I feel like it's a really interesting movie to study where it's sort of the, the look down at your phone test, right? Where you're just like every time you're like, oh, it's the next scene. Oh, wait, this scene, you know, and like everything is kind of it's either doing a crime action thing or it's doing a tense dialogue you're going to remember these lines because every every scene has like some memorable line and there's a tension or we are genuinely watching the characters have fun and i think that this movie especially especially this first movie is just such a nice balance of all of that and it'll be interesting to look at how that holds up in the next two movies mm. yeah yeah i think that's a really good point of like yeah like you're saying the midpoint is so dark we've been on that trajectory for so long that if we just had to keep going that direction it might be too much and might not Mm. be we might not be have the energy to be emotionally invested anymore and so it does kind of you know it's dynamics which are important exactly yeah Yeah, definitely well yeah awesome trisha what's your lesson 
Yeah. Um, I just want to briefly talk about kids and babies um, <laughs> and how critical they are to these movies. Uh, children and babies in film um, and in literature, you know, represent a wide variety of things, but typically they represent like innocence. They represent hope, that kind of thing, uh, except when they are crying and screaming and it, they in that in that sense, they they still are representing something like innocent, but a sense of like chaos or like sort of just a vague threat, right? Sort of in the same way. Go with me here. Uh, not I'm not talking about real life, but when you have like a crying baby in a scene, it's kind of like having a barking dog, right? right. Where it's like mm-hmm. a baby senses something is wrong when yeah. like. Adults and uh, adults are like clamped down on their emotions, but if something is really wrong, like a baby or a kid is going to be freaking out. Um, and so, like th- this movie is great at signaling to us using children. And, you know, they use children in a variety of ways. In the ways that I'm talking about, like we want Michael's kids to be okay, and like um, uh, there are a number of scenes where there is like a lot of hope and optimism where like it's the grandchild that brings him that brings Vito like a drawing right or, mm-hmm. or flowers or something when he's comes home and he's like oh grandfather um, so there are a number of scenes where you know the movie is ironically bringing in like the innocence and hope of children in like a, a juxtaposition um, to highlight sort of the darkness of the adults. But then there's also just like a lot of screaming babies in the background when something is seriously wrong, right? Mm. And so like the scene that really stuck out to me this time is the one where uh, his sister calls Sonny and I'm sorry, what's her name? Connie. Connie calls Mm -hmm. Sonny and like the baby is screaming at at Sonny's house, right? Right. Like you can barely hear. It's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not that that Connie's kids are screaming. It's that Sonny's baby is screaming so loud. And he's like, what? What's going on over there? It's like there's literally a warning bell directly next (laughs) to you, Sonny, telling you not to go. There's something wrong. Um, (laughs) And the movie does that so frequently where there's a crying baby in a scene where something is about to go horribly awry. And so it's just really cool. It it affects you on a subconscious level. I mean, there's nothing obviously more grating than a screaming baby anyway. Um, But it is doing like a, a symbolic literary thing. And also the other like notable presence of a child in this movie is in the scene where, you know, in Vito's death, um, where he's playing with his grandson and, um, yeah, they're outside again in that like super overexposed garden. Um, and he's playing as a monster trying to scare his grandson, like poking (laughs) out from behind the trees, like with the orange in his mouth. Um, again, there's a lot of, Dramirony, uh, dramatic irony there, <laughs> I guess. Um, where, yeah, we kind of know that Vito's in poor health and that yeah. he's dying, but the son, you know, the grandchild thinks it's a game. Um, right. It kind of highlights the the futility, maybe, of the way that Vito has lived his life in some ways. Or like, has it all been a game? Right. It's a game that has very real consequences, um, but it's a game that, like, ultimately, you know, you leave, you can't take it with you. Like, you die either way, um, whether it's peacefully in your garden from a heart attack with your grandson, or whether it's violently in a car on the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> 
or in a field near the Statue of Liberty. Guys, some of these death scenes. Guys, let's get to death scenes in the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Let's really yeah. get into it. Some good death scenes. There's yeah. some great ones in these movies. But yeah, anyway, kids and babies, um, they are a literary cinematic device that I feel like are often underutilized. And the Godfathers are really outstanding example of how to realistically again they don't need to be in that scene they don't need to be in any of these scenes because they're not doing anything other than like thematic tonal work um but it is a great way to like add meaning to these scenes because it's thematically supporting what's happening in this family yeah now i just want to see like a a parody movie where a character like doesn't get that something's wrong and a dog starts barking and a baby starts crying and thunder happens and outside. a train comes by. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I feel like, yeah, the most popular movie ever for like super film nerds only. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Alex, what's your lesson? Uh, my lesson is just getting back to the documentary feel that we were, were talking about. And I think part of what makes a movie feel classic to me or timeless is is kind of a like a lack of judgment or like a like an objective mm. non-judgmental lens. Yes. And yes. you know I think about another movie that felt like an instant classic when I saw it um Children of Men. And I think that movie also you know it definitely has bad guys. It has people who are opponents of the hero who have a belief system we don't agree with, who are doing things that we we don't want them to do, but the movie never is painting them as caricatures or as uh, almost kind of like seeing them through like a moral lens of a certain time and place. Uh, they're just people in this context doing their thing. And, and the movie is not interested in like morally judging anybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this movie does have some like bad guy scenes. You know, we have the scene where uh, Luca Brasi is killed. And that, that's feels like a very bad guy uh, doing a bad thing scene. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, I think, yeah, with the whole Corleone family and, you know, even when you know, there's the meeting of all the big, the big mafia families, um, you know, there's this one guy stands up and says this horrible thing, which is really interesting social historical commentary about, yeah, we'll do the drugs, but in my city, we'll keep it to the coloreds, you know, but we're going to put it into those, into those other communities, you know, they'll, they'll mm -hmm. deal with the fallout of our, you know, of our uh, money-making. But the movie isn't stopping to say, oh, look at this racist guy and like this is a bad guy and this is a good guy. It's just letting this scene play out and we judge for ourselves what we make of all these characters. And I think if you want your, you know, your movie to kind of stand the test of time, I think really just like understanding all of your characters and who they are and why they are and what it means to be alive in this time and place and just like let them be. And leave the judgments to us, the audience, but don't try to force it upon us. That that is what oftentimes I think results in that timeless feeling uh, for a film. And, and the movie isn't also it's 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 non-judgmental in all directions. It's also not positively judgmental in the sense of like over-identifying with the coolness or the right like, the fun of being a part of the mafia. Like it it's neither positive or negative. It's just showing you know a reality. Um, and I just really appreciate that. And and once again, I think yeah, there there is maybe a Scorsese approach to some of this content that I don't identify with as much because I do sense a little bit of like there's there's a participating in the fun mm -hmm. or the or the like the power 
Um, whereas I don't really feel like I'm being asked to participate in it in this movie. I'm, I'm being asked to kind of be swept up in it and to and to observe it, but I'm not uh, I'm I'm not being told to feel one way or the other. Um, and I just really appreciate that, and I think that is what makes a film like this feel like it never ages. It never feels like it's stuck in its moment in time. Right. And I think for better or for worse. <clears throat> Films like this, and, and I think some of the um, sort of cinema verite European films from the 60s meant that we got a whole decade in the 70s of movies trying really hard to just make you live with the characters for like mm -hmm. a little too long. Like, oh, this character is walking to the store, so let's follow him down the block for like five minutes and then he'll go and da da da. Um, so I think like Dog Day Afternoon, I remember the first time I tried to watch that and not commentary on the movie but just i was just like when is anything going to happen here and <laughs> uh and i think it's like there's like a 70s vibe you kind of have to get into and, oh yeah um but i think some movies like scorsese and coppola like they do find that balance where you are you are living so much in the world but also things are going to happen like if you just just wait to the end of the scene then the next scene something is going to happen um but i think the movies that haven't aged very well from the sort of late 60s and uh early to mid 70s are movies where it just feels like look at these characters existing for a very long time before yeah. plot happens i still want plot yeah <laughs> for sure yeah not and just to be clear plot. like the movie is not the movie i think what you're sort of identifying, Alex, or at least what I'm hearing from you, is that the the moral bind that Michael is in and the characters are all kind of in are it's not only of their own making, right? It's like in the world itself. Um, and the the inequities and the difficulties of existing in the world that they exist in. And so like paints this very complex portrait without being without in any way glorifying it right like i think ultimately this movie is about like the darkness of like you are a part of a crime family and crime there's a lot of murder and like the sins of the fathers are you know um are visited upon the children and all this stuff and so like it is ultimately like a condemnation in a lot of ways but it doesn't feel like a heavy-handed condemnation. It feels like a really complex exploration of like right. a culture and a time and a place. And so it's like no one is saying that this movie, like the mafia comes out looking good <laughs> at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, they right. don't. Um, but it's at the same time, as we've talked about, it is relatable, right? It's complex enough that it's relatable and you can find yourself in it. And so it doesn't feel like it has to be like a one-dimensional. Well, we can't pretend like we're condoning this so in every scene we have to have a character going like hmm i disagree <laughs> shouldn't we be moral right that's i think that's when cinema has that flattened feeling mm -hmm. um and i agree that unfortunately that's a huge part of film discourse these days where it's like what if people worry we're saying casual racism is good like <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> certainly there's a more nuanced way to read film than yeah. that I feel like there's just an honesty, you know, I feel like yeah. if you're portraying things honestly and and, and there's an the approach to all of these scenes just has that uh, that truthfulness to it, then I, I don't I feel like I understand as an audience member that I'm, I'm being shown like truth as best as you can portray it. And that's that that is a neutral thing like truth like trying to find the truth of a scene mm. uh like that is that's just it and and i can take that however i want to to take it that's a very difficult thing to do i think as, as a as a creator but this movie manages to do it in a, in a really beautiful way mm. 
Well, yeah, and I think for me, it, it's because this movie, it feels like it exists in a context. And I've talked before about how I like movies and stories about systems and how yeah. we're yes. all kind of players in a bigger system. And we are kind of, we have the desires that humans desire and we're bound by the system in which we are trying to operate. And I feel like this movie feels very of a time of a specific system that we know about. And I wonder if part of it is that it's, a movie, you know, it's a period piece. It's it's a movie made in the 70s about the 40s to 50s. So there is this kind of looking back on America, reflecting on the American dream and all those things and what it means. And with the benefit of knowing that, you know, the audience knows what happens, knows where everything ends up. And so I think that kind of adds an extra, lets you comment on the time and, and use the context of, you know, reality basically to, to set it in and so I, I think that's what adds to the truthfulness and that buys you that ability to um get at the truth of a thing and so i think it'd be cool if more filmmakers even if it's a modern day film treated it like what if we're making a movie about 2022 like we're not just making a movie we're yeah. making a movie where we've gone back in time to make a movie about 2022 and what are mm. all the things mm. that actually go into uh you know the the actions that any given person is making at any given time. If you weren't alive right now, what would you need to know to understand those decisions and, and the things they were struggling right. with? I think that helps make something feel timeless. I love that. I feel, I feel like I have a new maxim for us, Michael, as writers. Every movie should be a period piece. Yeah, I like it. I like cool. it too. Um, cool. Well, so my lesson, I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, but just going back to the the first shot and pacing, it's a thing I'm I'm in like a I'm on like a pacing thing right now. I don't know why. I just keep thinking <laughs> about pacing, uh, and it's just that that first shot. I feel like I've been involved in projects like my own and others where at some point something feels like it's not working, and there's like an impetus to like oh we gotta go back and cut stuff out or speed things up or like fix it by doing this or doing that. And usually it's it's a, a more writing problem core thing historically. But I think part of it is also just like a the, the, the pace you set from the beginning dictates how the audience will read the rest of your movie. And I think mm-hmm. that that's just such an important thing that is maybe easily overlooked. And there's maybe a, a false need to want to be like, we've got to start off with a bang and got to get people into it and get it moving. And then they're... 20 minutes have passed and now we'll do all the boring stuff and then people like disconnect and I don't know. So I just love that this movie begins with a really long, really slow take of a single guy telling a story. Like you can't watch that first scene and then be upset that it's not a Michael Bay movie for the rest right. of it. Right? <laughs> yep. uh, and so I just yeah. think it's such a great example of that, of signaling very clearly to an audience, like what, where they should, turn their dials to to get on the right wavelength of the mm-hmm. movie yeah reminds me of portrait of a lady on fire and how we talked about that movie teaches you how to watch it mm-hmm. and I think right godfather very much is in that same lineage yeah and even die hard we discussed that exact same thing about the timeline and the right. pacing right yeah yeah good movies all right well yeah there's a lot to talk about uh for part two, I'm excited. I feel like a lot of, I think we've set a nice foundation of things to like continue into the second one. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, but before 
before we do that and go on to the next episode next week, what have you guys been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching? So over the holidays, I watched a lot of movies and some TV. Uh, but one of the ones that we just randomly watched one night because it was on Netflix was uh, Miss Sloan, which mm. is oh, yeah. this political thriller that came out, I don't know when, several years ago or yeah, 2016, it looks like, um, starring Jessica Chastain. And it's it feels like this really interesting blend of like House of Cards and West Wing, like both inspirational but highly cynical, uh, but also characters that are impossible, like impossible Aaron Sorkin type characters that are like way too, you know, um, you know, there's like productivity porn in it, you know, where just people are doing impossible things and way too efficient. And anyway, it was <laughs> basically... All those things combined into just kind of like a fun package with with a great cast. Uh, it's it's kind of a silly movie in some ways, um, but if you want to watch Jessica Chastain and like you know power suits stomping around, like saying things like quickly and being really smart all the time, it's Who pretty, it? it's, it's a really good time, <laughs> <laughs> and and it and it does you know it. it it tickled all my like political cynicism, you know, about how just broken and horrible everything is. And it's about lobbying in Washington and how they just control everything. And it's, it's, it's fascinating in that way. It, it does. I think it kind of jumps the shark a couple of times. Um, but by that point in the movie, I was just having a good time going on, th- on this ride. So Miss Sloan, I think it's still on Netflix. Uh, just a good, just kind of modern political thriller with uh, fast talking and, Lots of power dynamics. So. <laughs> nice. Alex, in film, it's not jumping the shark. It's nuking the fridge. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they may have nuked the fridge in this see movie. That, see, that's a yeah. joke, again, that we'll put in this, you know, film nerd parody that I want to make. Um, yeah. Trisha, what have you been watching? So, first of all, I caught up on some films that I'd been meaning to see, which you guys have already recommended. Um, I saw The Green Knight, finally. Mm. I saw Come On, Come On. And I saw, I watched the entirety of Get Back, which you guys have all already talked about. And I just want to second everything you said about them. (laughs) I really enjoyed all of them, Um, especially Come On, Come On. It's just so beautiful. I was just weeping so much during it. It's it's really gorgeous. Um, So yes, if you needed another endorsement for any of those things, go watch them. They're all really great. Um, But then I caught an Italian movie uh, by Paolo Sorrentino, his new film, which is called The Hand of God. Um, And Mm. it's really great. If you know Paolo Sorrentino, um, he's an Italian director. He's made quite a few movies. Uh, he made a movie called The Great Beauty, which I really love. He made a movie called Youth, which is also excellent. Um, so this is his new movie. It's set in the 1980s and it's like a coming of age story that's semi-autobiographical. Um, and it stars uh, Filippo Scotti and a bunch of other like wonderful um, Italian cast it's like a very big cast it's about a very big italian family like some other films we've recently discussed and (laughs) it's it's just a really uh i don't know it's a lot of fun it just feels so honest like i said it's semi-autobiographical so it's about the filmmaker when he was a teen and um there's a tragic event that strikes his family uh that really happened to the filmmaker when he was a teenager and it's like it's wild and unpredictable um and so it's kind of about grief it's kind of about growing up uh it's just i i really really enjoyed it he's a an astounding director he creates these amazing images um 
Yeah, I really liked it. It's a new film, The Hand of God, uh, Paolo Sorrentino's new movie. So check it out. It's on Netflix, right? It is on Netflix. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Brian, what about you? Uh, because the series just ended, I will recommend Insecure, um, the HBO series, which I'm sure you've seen bits and pieces of just on your HBO Max. Um, but I've been watching it since the beginning. Uh, it's co-created by and starring Issa Rae, who is just sort of hilarious, awkwardly charming, charmingly awkward, whichever one. Uh, she like raps to herself in the mirror and her reflection has its own thoughts. And, sure. um, <laughs> and you know, it's sort of, it's one of these shows that's not really high concept. It's just, here's some characters. I hope you like them. Watch them try to be adults and have jobs and relationships and screw that up and not, sometimes not screw that up and hopefully you like them and you're going to spend some time with them, um, which I, I think when I talked about Rami, I, I said like that is just refreshing sometimes where it's just that sort of feeling of like, I'm going to I'm going to hang out with my my buddies again this week. Um, and then it's really interesting to see how the show evolved over the five seasons. I think one, the creators matured and then the filmmaking matured. And I'm sure there was more budget and stuff. So if you go back and watch the first season, it's like very gritty um, and a little more awkward by design, but then it becomes like this very elegant, like beautifully lit, beautifully shot show. Um, and the characters are dealing with like more adult problems and stuff. So it's, it's, and, and not, neither of those things is bad. It's just really interesting to see uh, creators and by design, their characters evolve over the course of a show. So yeah, I really enjoyed my time with it. And um, if you were, if you were waiting for it to be over, uh, Insecure is now, is now all, wrapped up so it's time to jump in nice. nice cool i've been meaning to so maybe now i will michael uh, yeah so i watched landscapers on hbo max ah. so this is the true crime uh miniseries it's only four episodes olivia coleman and david thulis are in it what? as this kind of yep. mild-mannered uh awkward couple that and this is you know the the whole point they they show this right at the beginning is you know these two people Real people uh, were convicted of murdering these the basically the Olivia Coleman character, her parents, and are currently serving you know twenty four years in jail for their murder. And I I love basically the the first shot of it starts with that, and then it goes to like a title saying that those details, and then it says this is a true story, and then the word true dissolves, and it's just left with this is a story. And that's very much like the directorial statement that is being mm. done throughout the show. And the, it's almost like if like Michelle Gondry did a true crime series because it's constantly mm. trying to like bring you out of the story almost. And mm. it, I, I really liked it as someone who was really into true crime, but also saw the danger of like when people take a true crime series or a fictionalization as being too accurate or honest or like oh i know who that person is because i watched the movie this mo this series feels very much like it's fighting against that to the point where it will show you them building the sets for the scene you're about to watch or mm. just watched or like the, again the very first shot is like it's a wide shot of like a rainy you know uh like courtyard area at night outside of like a courthouse in london uh but it starts with all the extras frozen and then you hear the ad say go extras ready and action and then it goes and then it just starts like it's a normal thing i and need so to watch this it's really cool I, it's 
it's almost the experimental style, like almost is too much. But ultimately, I really, really appreciated it and really found the story and the characters compelling and fascinating. And the performances are obviously amazing. I'm sure they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Just this just is fine. so fascinating because I watched uh, scenes from a marriage over mm. the court, the, the new HBO oh, yeah. Max, like it, you know, reimagining of it with Jessica Chastain again <laughs> and um, Oscar Isaac. And it, they do the same thing in that oh. show. It's, mm. It was another HBO show, but like literally <laughs> every episode begins with like one of the actors like going to set and like getting makeup on. Whoa. And then, like it just like fluidly becomes the first shot of the of that episode. Hmm. Also, oh, doesn't don't look up, don't look up has like the crew visible at one point by design. So mm. it's just apparently that's the thing. Today. The thing right mm. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but there's I, I it made me think about like why yeah why do that? And I guess in the case of scenes from a marriage, I could see it being almost like a way of setting it up as a theat like a stage play experience because mm -hmm. because it is truly most people talking in a house um most of the episodes um and but it's interesting to hear that another show is doing the, almost the same mm -hmm. thing maybe for a different reason so yeah two shows on hbo both experimenting in this like fourth wall breaking yeah huh it's pretty interesting i feel like it's you know of our time to try to be Very, grappling with yeah what is meta really, what is not right. everything's oh, meta everything. oh, you haven't heard things. our matrix resurrections uh, episode <laughs> on podcast <laughs> on patreon <laughs> Uh, yeah, head over to the Discord where there's lots of um, civil discourse happening. Uh, <laughs> you said that like it's sarcastic. There is a lot of no, civil it's discourse. Civil. It is Our civil. Discord is very civil. Right. Yes. It is Our civil patrons are the best. And contentious all at the same time. Spicy. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's the In best kind of... a loving way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, this has been our conversation about The Godfather. We will see you guys next week for The Godfather Part 2. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible and, again, helping us get past that goal of a 1,000 patrons, which is amazing. Thank you so much. We want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major, as always. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Calleros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next week for The Godfather Part 2. Bye, everybody. Ciao, ciao. Bye. I would not have guessed that this episode would have involved uh, Star Wars prequel <laughs> impressions also. Yeah. It took everything for me to not continue doing the Hayden Christensen right. monologue. Yeah. animals. And I slaughtered them like animals. I ate them. I mean, they're sand people. <laughs> <laughs>